Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the host of this show, as well as a director of creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about how to choose an adoption-competent therapist with Kelly Roddenbush. She is a child and family therapist and the executive director of the Sparrow Fund in the Philadelphia area. She spearheads Sparrow Counseling, providing specialized therapeutic services for foster and adopted children, as well as their families. Welcome, Kelly, to Creating a Family. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I am. This is a topic. It's, it's an important one. And it's one we get a lot of, you know, it's a funny topic in the sense that we, we always recommend choose. We always recommend therapy for a first for families yes. who are struggling. And then yes. second, we will say that, that the therapist should have knowledge of adoption. Ideally. Now, if you don't have that, any therapist is probably better than none, you know, so, so, right. you know, but so don't, don't, sure. don't let perfection get in the way of good here. But yeah. uh, anyway, but it's, so it's a nebulous term and it's, it's one that we throw about a lot. So I am, glad to be talking about it with you today. Um, But let's start with just a really basic question. What type of professionals provide therapy in general? I'm not talking adoption competent therapy. I'm just talking about what type of professionals can provide therapy? Sure. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of different helpers that can do like what we typically imagine as therapy. There's social workers and counselors and psychologists, some psychiatrists provide psychotherapy. So it's, it's kind of a wide range of helpers, which probably is why it, it's so confusing yeah. and hard for families. <laughs> yeah. I know. And you know, it's a, there are just a, an alphabet soup of initials that can follow somebody's sure. name. Sure, and sure, sure. yeah, you can Google that and, and find out, but that's probably not the, that shouldn't be where you begin and end in choosing a therapist is what, no. they, uh, what their uh, the initials after their name are. So let's, what's the difference between the word that we hear bandied about a lot now, adoption competence. Uh, and adoption informed when we're talking about mental health professionals? Yeah, this is something that I've been actually spending a lot of time thinking about lately in terms of a lot of things, not just adoption, but also thinking about like cultural competence versus culturally informed. Um, I feel like the word competence is a bit weighted in that it implies a bit of finitude, like completion, as if somebody has, has something figured out, like they've arrived, <laughs> like they, <laughs> they know what they're doing. They are now competent. And I, I wonder if using labels like competency could create expectations that actually could be harming, honestly, for both the helper and the one being helped in that Gosh, if we use the word competency as a helper, I feel like I am perhaps less free to be exploring and reflective and learning and growing. Like it's expected of me that I need to know exactly what to do if I'm competent in it. Or that I have I have become competent and it ends at that point because yes. I know what it is. But would you agree that either competence or informedness, that's not even a word, is it? About it adoption. Let's make it a word. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Beca- being in, oh, let's, let's see, let me uh, go back, harken back to my English days, being informed or uh, being informed about adoption issues. Would you agree that that's an important thing for a family to seek out when they are or, or an adoptee, either one? Okay, good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Being informed is, 
is absolutely helpful, but informed in a way that the clinician, that your helper is coming into your, your, your life with a spirit of humility, not having figured it all out, not as, not as the expert, but with expertise. And I think that that is um, a big difference. Okay. That, that would make sense. So what makes a therapist adoption informed or what could make a therapist adoption informed? You know, if from my perspective, and I'm, I'm totally willing to accept the fact that if you ask this question of different people in this field, you would get probably a hundred different answers from a hundred different people. But um, (laughs) yes, I, I mean, simply put from my perspective, I think it takes an understanding of relationships and the breadth of effects that trauma can have when it's experienced in the context of relationships. So I think, you know, simply put, understanding of relationships and understanding of trauma, as well as being willing to see the child in the context of a family. Mm -hmm. You know, if that makes sense. No, no, that, that makes very good sense. But that begs the question of what's the difference between adoption informed or adoption competence, depending on the term, and trauma-informed right. or trauma-competent? I guess that I don't know if there's a super distinctive difference with that. I mean, some people could say there are different types of trauma. There's trauma that's experienced as a single event, uh, you know, that can blindside or um, overwhelm someone like an illness or an accident or uh, witnessing an assault even being a victim of, of assault could, could mm-hmm. be categorized like that. And then there's a different type of trauma that's experienced over time in the context of relationships. And honestly, adoption can fall into both. Yeah. It can be both mm-hmm. a singular event that is traumatic as well as an experience of trauma in the context of relationships it, over time. It, yeah. it, depending on a child's situation, it really fits into both. So Trauma is a bit of an umbrella term and adoption mm-hmm. informed may fit under that, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. And, and I would add to your, uh, what I liked your definition as far as what it takes to be and why it's important uh, to be adoption informed or competent. Mm-hmm. I would add that an openness to view adoption outside uh, to, to embrace the numerous losses that can be a part of adoption doesn't have to be, but it can right. be depending right. on how the adoptee and the, and the parents and the adoptive parents process it. But I think that's another thing. I think that in the, in the past, hopefully a fairly distant past, the idea was once you were adopted, any of the losses associated, that was not a loss. That was a, that was a gain and a gain only. Mm. And that that the focus needed then to be shifted fo- into the future and not into the past. And so I do think that it's important. And I think we have, most therapists have moved past that, or at least adoption-informed therapists should have. Right, 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 right. right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So how can you tell if a therapist is adoption competent or informed? If or how are they, how, how can you tell if they are up to the handling adoption issues, if that's what you're th- seeking therapy for your family or child or yourself for? Are there specific trainings? Let's talk about questions to ask later. Let's, let's start by saying, okay. are there specific trainings that you can look for? And then we'll talk about questions later. 
I mean, there are certainly some therapeutic models that tend to be accessed for serving adopted children and their families. So certainly consideration of model is part of it. But to my knowledge, there really aren't specific trainings to become adoption-informed clinicians. I, I think it has more to do with experience and sensitivity and how a clinician sees a child and a family, um, which makes it incredibly difficult. Yeah, it does. A few trainings that you can look for. One is the Center for Adoption Support and Education. They have a, well, an adoption competency initiative funded by a, um, a federal grant to increase the number of adoption competent professionals. And as part of their website, which you can find uh, adoption competency initiative or just Center for Adoption Support and Education, Google either of those, and we'll include links to them as, oh, I tell you what, you can find links to them at Creating a Family's website. And that would be creatingafamily.org slash adoption, or just go creatingafamily.org, click on uh, the horizontal menu that adoption, click on adoption topics, scroll down and click on adoption therapy. And all of there will be links to everything we've talked about, we are talking about today there. So anyway, the Center for Adoption Support and Education has some specific training, and then they list those who have gone through the training. So that would be one. Do you know of others that... Uh, that provide any form of training that might be applicable? Yeah. I mean, many adoptive families are familiar with the TBRI model. That's mm -hmm. It's not a therapeutic model. It's a parenting mm -hmm. model. It stands for Trust-Based Relational Intervention, which was championed by Dr. Karen Purvis and now is championed by the Karen Purvis Institute for Child Development. And they have a program for TBRI certified practitioners. That is not a be all to find a good therapist. There's plenty right. of good therapists who have not done. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who've done that training who are not therapists. You know, there yeah, are teachers, other professionals who have gone through the TBRI training just to learn how to serve families. So that is another resource to find maybe some people to connect with and some potentials, but, you know, I'm not sure if, if such a program actually exists, I'm glad to hear that there are some that might be scratching the surface, but I don't know if there's a perfect program that therapists can go through to then have yeah. like a document on the wall that says that they're adoption certified or, you know, adoption uh, competent. I don't, I don't know if that truly exists. No, I, and I would suspect neither of these would claim that, although I think that the uh, case Center for Adoption Support and Education oh, yeah, absolutely. Would, would probably go that far. You know, I, I was glad you mentioned experience and one form of experience that I think that, that I want to throw out there is depending on the issue that your, your child or your family is facing, the lived experience of an adopted person can be a very useful mm. lens in which to help the family. And there is a list of adoptee therapists, adopted people who have since become therapists. And we link to that 
on that page I mentioned. It is uh, with the Beyond Word Psychological Services. And this is not a guarantee either. They with they they list by state adoptees that are therapists, and you can look through and see if the therapist specializes in the issue that your family or your child or yourself is facing. So that's another that's another resource and one that we, we strongly encourage. And you can also, I should mention, a number of those therapists are therapists of color. So if your child is struggling with some, as a transracial adoptee, struggling with some of those issues, speaking with a therapist who may have lived that experience may be helpful as well. All right. So is anything else before we move on? I should, didn't mean to hurry here. Is there any uh, any other place that people could go specifically to find a adoption competency. You know, one other thing I would throw out before I, is that word of mouth is uh, of other adopted uh, that's, parents. Yeah, yeah that's, go ahead. That's honestly the, the next thing that I was going to mention is they that do. You mentioned it social there. media, as far as the connecting can go with other families, like, you know, reaching out to other families, you know, who are local in whatever that social media may look like for you, whether that's, you know, Facebook groups or some other form Mm -hmm. with other families and be willing to put out there to say who have come along, you know, who have you used, who, who has helped support your family and why, what, like, why do you like them? Like what made them helpful? I think that that's like a great way to find for your family, because the reality is, is that not everybody is all things for all people. Yes. So, you know, there may be a really, really great clinician for one family who just isn't the right fit for someone else. So I always like to add that question of what, what made them helpful to you, Uh not just who do you recommend with like a list of names, but to get a little bit more color to why that particular helper was appreciated. What, what helped them move along? Where, what was the presenting problem? You know, how did they do it? How long were they coming alongside the family? I think all of those things are really important to ask. Very good point. One other source that I thought of is your adoption agency and asking them now often, sometimes, not oftentimes, sometimes the agency that places a child with you is not located in your geographic area. So another, so if that's the case, another tip is to contact your county or, or another agency in, in your area. It could be a foster placing agency. It could be your county social service agency. It could be a, another adoption agency. And ask who they have had success with to get a name of who they're recommending for their families to go to. So another source. Yeah, I, I mean, even if your adoption agency is not local, adoption agencies they know each other, you know, they connect with other colleagues, they go to conferences together. So don't discount their ability to um, help you find someone. Good point. Because I'm in a number of groups where I'll see someone post and say, I have a family in this state, who knows someone who might be helpful to them locally and things like that. You know, and, and we should expect that of our, that is a service that we should expect of those placing agencies, placing children. So good point. Don't discount them if just because they're not local as far as their ability to help you. Sure. We hope you are enjoying this episode. Did you know that you can get more expert-based free content just like today's podcast? Thanks to the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. 
We have 12 free online courses available for you on our online learning center that's being provided free by Jockey Bean Family. They are focused on parenting courses and you can use them for your uh, CE if you're a foster parent. Check with your agency, of course, but it can be used there. It can also just be used to make you a better parent. To get there, you go to bit.ly slash JBF support. That is B-I-T dot L-Y slash J-B-F support. Check it out today. Is one type of therapeutic model of treatment more effective for adoptive children and, and families than another? This is such a good question and one that I feel like I get asked a lot. And, you know, like there are some models that tend to be used more commonly for adopted children and families, but it's really more about the space between the helper and the one being helped rather than the model itself. When we're talking about relational work, what matters most is the relationship. So, you know, I, I want to see families. That's kind of why I asked families what made someone helpful. I want to see a family. They felt like they mattered. I don't want a family to dread seeing the appointment pop up on their calendar. I want, you know, it's hard work. So I can understand if they're kind of like, oh boy, here we go. You know, therapy can be hard work, but it shouldn't be dreadful. Like therapy can be, and should be fun. It should be connecting. You should leave the therapy feeling good and hopeful and moving forward. You know, so I, 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 you know, we can talk about models. I know, I think that's important, but you know, always kind of um, remembering that caveat that like more important than a system or a strategy or a model is the person who's using it. That's such a good point. And does it work? Does it fit with you? Have you connected? Right, right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right. But now let's talk about some of the different models that you said some have been shown to be more effective. Let's talk sure. about those. So do you want me to name some or do you want to ask yeah. about some? Yeah, okay. Go ahead and so- name some. I would say to work exclusively with foster and adoptive therapy, DDP, which stands for Dyadic Developmental Psychotherapy, and TBRI, which we already mentioned, which, like I said, it's not a therapeutic model, but a lot of clinicians get you know trained in and familiar in it to help coach parents on, on how to use strategies. Other models that can be helpful, um, narrative work is really helpful. EMDR is a, is a model that's growing in popularity for um, help us trauma. Also, animal-assisted work has shown to be very, very helpful for kids who struggle with giving and receiving affection and letting other people be in charge and all of those things that a lot of our kiddos struggle with who have come from a background of trauma. And let me just mention EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It, it goes commonly by EMDR. So, yeah. No, most people probably don't even know what it stands for. So I'm glad that you you gave that information. Including probably therapists. And certainly, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yes. When I say most people, I was including myself in that most. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, and something that, that to also note that... For instance, if you are looking for a therapist trained in TheraPlay or trained in 
trust-based relational intervention, TBRI, you can go to their websites and likely find a resource, usually often broken down by state, of therapists who have gone through their training. So that's another way. Now, they may not have experience TBRI probably does have experience uh, with adoption or foster. Theraplay may or may not, so there have to be additional questions, but you could very easily find a list in your state, so finding somebody nearby. I don't know about DDP. Does that have a, a website that where you could go and have a list of, of practitioners who have trained in that? Yes. So DDP also has a list of clinicians who are trained in it. I believe Theraplay does too. And Theraplay is an attachment-based model. And so I think that, that it's, I mean, it's always good to ask more questions, but if someone has a background and training in Theraplay, I believe that they would be, you know, adoption and trauma informed because that really is an emphasis of Theraplay. Okay, good. I stand corrected then. And yes, they do have a directory, or last time I looked, they did. Anyway. Are you enjoying today's podcast on how to choose an adoption-competent therapist? If so, do us a favor and tell a friend about what you've learned and how they can learn more about Creating a Family and our podcast. We are so grateful for your help in spreading the word about the podcast. Most people learn about podcasts from their friends, so be a friend and be a friend to us as well. Thanks. So you've alluded to the fact that that we can't just rely on initials or we can't just rely on being listed in a directory for having some form of training. We have to go beyond that. And and obviously that that leads us to questions we should be asking. We as Mm -hmm. parents, we as families should be asking, or if you're an adult adoptee, but questions to ask a therapist to determine if they're a good fit for your child, a good fit for your family, and especially in dealing, obviously, with adoption issues, since that's what we're talking about. So what type of questions should 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 parents ask? And it's awkward, I will add. It is very awkward <laughs> to be asking questions. You feel like you're being judged just by asking questions sometimes. Oh, but, I yeah. hope that's not the case. I, I hope, you know, being on the helper side of this, I take very, very seriously that early communication with parents because I recognize that by the time they get to the point that they're reaching out and asking about help, there has been a, a history of hurt that goes before that. That yep. you know, so I I take very, very seriously those initial conversations. And I I trust that that's the case with many helpers that we recognize that a lot has transpired to even lead to that Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. So I try to take whatever awkwardness is there out of it, but I, but I do hear you and I'm sure from the receiving end that that is hard. Well, you know, partly it's hard because as, as you so aptly point out, you're coming to, as a family or a parent, you're coming to this after having experienced something that is hard, whether you've experienced it or whether your child has experienced it, more likely you both have. And you you come with vulnerabilities and a fear that you right. are the problem or the fear that, oh is, yeah, or, or a fear that it's hopeless or a fear that you have screwed your life around royally. <laughs> how are you going to get out of this? Right. You know, this? How are you going to improve the situation? So it's a, it's a relationship formed out of fear and sometimes or out of fear or desperation yes. or, or whatever. So I think that's part of the, what we call awkwardness is what we're, what we as parents and families are bringing to the equation. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think 
I mean, one thing that I, I think is inherent, like you said, to the the start of this relationship being like started in hard things. Mm -hmm. I think it's also a relationship that is not reciprocal, you know, and actually that's quite freeing. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the reality is, is that, you know, you're paying someone to come alongside and, and help you in different ways. Like there is a cost to that. And that means you don't have to be like their friend. You don't have to like reciprocate the help that they're giving you. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think that takes a little bit of the vulnerability out of it to know that like that is inherent and expected and normal in that relationship. And it's okay. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what are some of the questions that you should ask as a parent to determine, is this a good fit? I think primarily, you know, when I talk to parents before they even fill out intake work, you know, before they ever fill out a form, if they express an interest in services, we typically offer a short phone call. Because what I, what I say to families is I don't want you to be sitting on a waiting list and not know if you're waiting for what you really want. You know, like if, if this isn't what you want, then let's figure that out on this side of things so that you can find what you need and not sit around waiting for something that may not fit your family. So, I mean, one thing I would say is ask for the phone call. Like Mm -hmm. if, if there's a potential helper that you're wondering about, if they would be a good fit, like be bold enough to say, can I please have a phone call, just a short 15 minutes to even like hear their voice and try to test out if you would feel comfortable with them? Mm-hmm. You know, are they are they quick to say they're going to solve a problem or are they seeing your family more relationally or, um, you know, do you feel like you, you could be comfortable sitting with them week in and week out for a long time? You know, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's important. I would say too, uh, probably the most important thing for adoptive families is to ask how the clinician partners with the parents. Is that a priority and what does it look like? Whether that's parents in the sessions or communication or uh, how do they scaffold and come alongside parents specifically rather than supporting the child only? That's such a good, that, that leads me to a question because we get this question a lot and there seems to be a fair amount of diversity. Uh, should adopted, if for therapies involving an adoptive family, should the adoptive kid be just in the session or should the child and the parents be in the session together or some combination of the two? How does that work? How do, how do therapists scaffold in parents? Yeah, yeah. This looks very, very different between practitioners. But I will say that these models that we've talked about, TheraPlay specifically, that's designed for the parent to be involved. DDP, also that dyadic developmental psychotherapy, the word dyadic is that caregiver child part. So the model itself is based on the parents being actively involved in the sessions. Now that doesn't mean that they're wouldn't be good reason or cause to have some work done either alone with the child or alone with the parents. 
but a lot of these models are are really structured around that relationship between the caregiver and the child. And so an essential part is that the parent is involved. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it couldn't be helpful. You know, like if, if if there's a therapist that you feel like could be a good fit for your family, but they say to you, oh, well, I will only see a child. I don't see families. That doesn't mean that we need to like, you know, write them off and say that they might not be helpful. There could still be good work to be done. But a lot of these models really are based on that attachment relationship. And so the parent involvement is an essential part of it. If you had a therapist who said, I only want to work with the child, but the parent knows that they have information they need to share with the therapist. And they think that the therapist needs to share information with them so that they can be better parents to this child. How should a parent approach that? Oh, that is such a good question because there's a lot of good, good, good clinicians, but who only work maybe with children. And I would say to that parent, like make an appointment, just make an appointment for just yourself. You know, if if the clinician isn't set up or isn't comfortable or, or just doesn't have experience working with the dyad, with a, with a caregiver and a child, they might be willing to work just with you as well. So maybe you do a, a pattern of like, you know, two sessions with the child and one session with a parent only, you know, not with the family so that there is a partnership and kind of coaching and sharing and communication involved. But that's only if the therapist is willing, though, to share information with you, because some therapists that's right. will not. They may see you independently. That's, that's true. But the communication really is essential. If the, it's not the child, it's not the parent, it's their relationship that is my client. And part of my consent form, children understand, children over 14 sign it, parents see it is not confidentiality between children and parents when we're doing this kind of attachment work, but, but you're right. Not everybody sees it in that same way. And that can, Mm -hmm. that can get very challenging and complicated. Yeah. Which may indicate that that's not the best type of therapy if what you're seeking. And, and, but it's a good question to ask at the beginning. Right. It doesn't mean it, you know, like we said, it doesn't mean that that helper cannot be of help because what we haven't mentioned yet is the impact of just logistics. You know, we, we're talking about how to find like the best clinician, the best helper, but what we haven't mentioned is like, do you need insurance to cover it? You know, yeah. who, who has a waiting list and who might be able to get you in faster? Yeah. Who has, uh, what is the cost? How far away the distance wise, how practical is it for you to get there? Uh-huh. Do they see you once a week? Do they see you once every two weeks? You know, those types of things really matter to busy families. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be that you are limited to you know who you can work with because of these logistical concerns. And it doesn't mean that that clinician is is a fail. If they say, no, you know we're going to honor confidentiality and I will see you, but I can't share with you what your child said or something, that may not be ideal if you're working on attachment. I, I will say that. It may not doesn't mean it can't be helpful. Yeah. And and, and I'm so glad you brought up the practicality because that frustratingly in the mental health professions is so, it's so prevalent. Do they cover your insurance? And if your child is covered by Medicaid, do they accept Medicaid? Will they, uh, 
yeah, it, it, what's their waiting list? Right. And all just the, a lot of very practical things that do, yeah, good point. And so sometimes it goes back to, you know, don't let perfection get in the way of good. Yeah. Yeah. Which is sad and both and, and frustrating. You know, one type of therapy that I, in the last two years, have heard more and more about, and that is, goes by different names, but home-based therapy. What are some of the advantages of this type of therapy for adoptive and foster families? Yeah, home-based therapy has actually been around for a long time. I, yeah, it's come. It's kind of having its moment now. Yeah, you know, a lot yeah, like I cauliflower, wonder. you know, or Brussels sprouts are now having their moment. I, you know, I feel like home-based therapy <laughs> is kind of having its moment. It, not not so much this year exclusively, but in the last couple of years, maybe three or four years, we're yeah, hearing it a lot yeah. more. Yeah, I do wonder how COVID has affected that. But um, good point. Yes, you know, and it has. I, I do actually. get the fact that maybe it's maybe it's coming back into popularity. And I think there is good value to the idea of having a helper come into your real life space with things like uh, the way that the space is set up that may be causing um, some increase in escalation or appearance like in your real life space. However, I would add that there is also really good value to leaving your space mm-hmm. and going somewhere else there's value in, in the commute. There's a value in like uh, that's that time that you spend in the car together as you're going and coming home. There's value in having a dedicated space that's set up for relational work that you know that when you enter that space, it's safe and it's calm and peaceful and hopefully all those things. And I And I think that families really appreciate like having that dedicated attention where a child knows like this time is for me and this time is for us. And sometimes with home-based services, you don't get that. If you're dealing with like phone calls and other children who may, you know, need attention and pets and and all Mm -hmm. the things that can happen in your home. Yeah. Such a good point. Yeah. There is value to both. Yes. And, and, and the same family could benefit from both. Let's be honest. Oh yeah. For sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about something that, again, is having a moment and probably directly as a result of, although I think it was around before, but it's certainly around more now. And that is telehealth or teletherapy. Yes. Using any form of of teleconferencing to perform, to work with on therapy with a family. How effective is that? First of all, how common is it? And second, how effective is it? (laughs) Well, how common is it? Gosh, you know. In 2020, it was 100% of the help, right? I mean, before COVID, telehealth was something that a lot of, uh, some professionals really believed in and some really didn't believe in Mm -hmm. and insurance companies didn't believe in. You know, most insurance companies would not cover telehealth services prior to COVID. COVID has, has dramatically changed that in that, not only is there an acceptance of telehealth, but people have become much more comfortable in mm-hmm. that space, much more comfortable with, with the idea of Zoom calls and engaging with people over the screen. Now, I, I will say, you know, up to what, 90, 93% of our communication is nonverbal. And, you know, our ability to pick up on all of those little idiosyncrasies of like a whole body of the way someone's foot is moving or 
a glance or a, you know, a stiffening of muscles. Uh, at least I do. Maybe there are mm-hmm. people who are really good at that over zoom and other platforms, yeah. but yeah, um, no. <laughs> that is, it is really hard for me to pick up on that over zoom. So I feel a bit handicapped doing zoom calls, but I recognize the fact that like, we're on a different cultural space and mm-hmm. now people not only are more comfortable with it, some people are realizing that it's a lot more convenient, Sure, including, including the clinicians themselves. There's a lot mm-hmm. of clinicians who are like, Hey, I kind of like this, that I can like work at home and not have to do this long commute and I can be in my space. And so it really has changed the dynamics. It has made support, I think more generally accessible. And that is a good thing. So whether it's the same as in person, in my experience, I would much prefer to have people in my physical space, Mm -hmm. particularly children. I was going to raise the issue of, I I do think there's a difference when you have children involved. Absolutely. Age of the child would matter as well. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think generally teenagers are way more comfortable Mm -hmm. with like online platforms. And so they may not feel the effect as much as children or grownups do, but if the clinicians are (laughs) grownups, we're feeling the effect. So the teen might be more comfortable, but I don't know if the helper would be entirely more comfortable, Mm -hmm. you know, using, using telehealth. I think if, if a family is having to use telehealth or even if they choose to use telehealth, I think there are some ways to make it more effective. Okay, um, what would those be? Uh, some of them might be like having having everyone involved in the call in the same physical space, but having everyone on their own device. Now that sounds like it could be like disintegrating to relationship, but allows us to like see close up instead of having this like television far across the room and like mm-hmm. everyone in the family is sitting on a couch really far away. Mm-hmm. It would give us a little bit of a closer view of um, the people involved. So that's that's one way mm-hmm. um, that I would say is helpful. I mean, I personally have kind of made it my practice that I will do parent sessions over Zoom if we're doing a parent-only uh, meeting. But I, as soon as we were able to open up to in-person meetings again during COVID, children came into the physical space. I just did not feel comfortable doing child work over telehealth, but I know a lot of colleagues who feel differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, some, somewhat age dependent on the child, but also personality of the child. Sure. And what they're struggling with. I mean, a yeah. lot of the kids were struggling with virtual school. Yeah. So then doing like a virtual supportive session for them it just, you know, would not be effective in that case yeah. if they're already struggling with doing everything else online. Adding insult to injury, shall we say? Yes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And that's certainly not what therapy should be ever. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. I want to thank one of our longest serving partners, Children's Connection, Inc. They have been, gosh, they have been a partner for creating a family for a very long time. They're an adoption agency in Texas providing services for domestic infant adoption and embryo donation and adoption throughout the U.S. They also provide home study and post-adoption support to families in Texas. Children's Connection, a shout out. Thank you so much for your long-term support. 
right. So any last tips you can give us for how to choose a therapist to work with our family and our child on adoption-related issues? I mean, one thing that we haven't addressed in all of this, and my guess is is because you've addressed it in other podcasts on that, the idea of when, (laughs) when do you seek out a therapist and how do you know it's time to even start that process? And Mm -hmm. perhaps that's a topic for a whole nother podcast, one that you, you, you may have done, but I mean, I, I would say to parents that if you ever feel stuck if you feel like you're not moving forward, if you're feeling the of your family relationships, if you're noticing that your child is being affected on a regular basis in a way that you feel like is not allowing them to be like the best version of themselves, mm-hmm. then I'd say it's time to start exploring and possibly exploring other avenues of help that may not be psychotherapy. It could be Asking, you know, if you're part of a faith community, reaching out to your church to find out if there is any support for families through your church or your other faith community, or I don't know, a teacher, a school counselor. There are plenty of grownups who might be able to come alongside prior to entering a psychotherapy relationship with a professional, Mm -hmm. but don't wait. Don't wait, particularly right now. I feel like I keep seeing articles pop up on social media about the tremendous wait lists mm-hmm. of mental health professionals uh-huh. and how challenging it is for people who think that they're like, okay, I need help. And then they're told it's going to be a super long wait. Yeah. And I'm particularly sensitive to that because we're in the same position. We have a waiting list. You know, I, I get it, but I'd say don't. Don't wait until you're desperate. You know, if you're mm-hmm. feeling the tug that you may need some extra support, it's okay. That is normal. That's good to do things in community and to, to seek out support. It does not mean that you're a bad parent or that, you know, the situation is hopeless. It's a good thing. Therapy, counseling, any sort of help for your family is really not something mm-hmm. to be ashamed of at all. Mm-hmm. Amen. I could not. I'm, I'm giving you a standing ovation to, to the final. And, <laughs> oh, wow. And, That's so great. <laughs> the other part is, 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 yes, you're sadly, it is true about the waiting list. And I would say one, this is not therapy, but do consider joining a support group uh, yes. as you're waiting uh, or if soon as you soon as well, actually, honestly, I think all families, regardless adoptive or otherwise, could could use the support. But certainly, I think adoptive and foster families should seek out therapy, uh, not seek out. I'm sorry, a support group uh, as soon as the child comes into their home, and then the, and then you can also. This is not the same as therapy, but it does provide support and can help guide you towards therapy when you're ready for it. Yeah, Don, I think you're right, but also to keep in mind that. If you cannot find a formal, structured support group in your area, that finding helpful relationships where you can be honest and vulnerable, and there is some reciprocity, you know, with peers, other adoptive parents, other Mm -hmm. foster parents, make your own group therapy. You don't need a Mm -hmm. professional to do that. Seek out those relationships and be willing to take the risk to say, this is what we're dealing with 
what do you think? And like, have you ever experienced this and be willing to, to like create that for yourself mm-hmm. in lieu of a structured formal mm-hmm. program? Mm-hmm. I, when my children were younger, uh, my running partner is a fellow adoptive mom. And she and I jokingly said our, ther- our runs, our weekly runs were therapy sessions and they provided such support for <laughs> yes. each of us. Yeah. Just I to think be able like, to talk. I think recognizing that there are a lot of things that can be therapeutic that aren't therapy. Mm-hmm. Friendships. Seek those <laughs> things out. Yes. Whatever that may be for you. And to, to not withdraw that the, that what is therapeutic and what helps us the most are our relationships with other people. So fight that urgency or the, that nudge that tells you that you want to hide and you want to withdraw from people, fight that and pursue people because that is where therapeutic work can happen. On perfect note for us to thank you, Kelly Roddenbush, for being with us today to talk about adoption therapy and how to choose an adoption therapist. We so appreciate your wisdom. And to everyone else out there, come back and join us next week. <laughs>